Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. That with God comes victory. Even when the odds are stacked against you, God's in your corner. You've already won. (laughs) The rest is just formality. The book of Revelation has been subject to more speculation than just about any other book of the Bible. For the most part, this speculation has resulted in failed prophecy predictions and subsequently much discredit to the Bible's authority. Now that's led some people to claim that the book of Revelation cannot be understood. But we might ask, in what way then is it a revelation? Tonight, Dr. Corbett says how we might best go about understanding Could you Revelation. Please turn in the book of Revelation, please. And we're going to be having a look in chapter 7 in just a moment. Revelation chapter 7. We've been in the Revelation series. And after this, I've had people ask, is there anything, is there other resources or anything like that? The answer is yes. In the corner over there, I've actually written a book on understanding the book of Revelation. There's lots of very nice comments that people have given back on it. You'll see those in the front cover. If you want it devalued, I can even sign it for you. So we can do that as well. Let's pray. I think the book Revelation is a significant book. It's a significantly important book. And I think we need God's help to understand it. So let's pray. Father, open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts. Help us to see and to hear and to feel your spirit this morning so that we can understand your word in a, in a meaningful way. I pray, Lord, that people would leave this place today with great inspiration and great confidence that you are the God of the Bible. And we pray that you would help us to reach our friends, our neighbours, our family, and to be armed, ready with the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So understanding the book of Revelation, just a little recap. I've mentioned right from the start that the book of Revelation is suggested by some to be a book which cannot be understood. And I've I've retorted, well, then what is it a revelation of? If it's a revelation of nothing, then then it's got the wrong name. And yet the opening of the book itself tells us that it is, in fact, it's the opening words, the opening five words, I think, of the clue. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in this book, the book of Revelation, we are going to see something about Christ that perhaps you may not immediately appreciate. As we do that, I think that we, we need to understand something about Bible prophecy. Because one of the things I'm going to show you as we looked at last week is when we looked at the opening of the first Six, six seals, I showed you that part of our mission here is to look over the shoulder of the first century readers. To Someone said, put, put their sandals on your feet and read what they read. And when you do that and you read the opening, the first seal was the rider of the white horse who was given a crown. And I asked you, think in terms of 65 AD, you're in, you're in that area and you're, you're hearing about someone who's got a crown, just been given a crown. What would you think? And, I, and I'm suggesting to you, they probably would have thought the emperor who was crowned. And he was crowned emperor, king of the kings of the earth. And that was Augustus. And coincidentally, Augustus actually rode a white horse. Then we saw uh, white, was it red, black? I know it's all I just know the St Kilda football colours are the first three colours. We go through and we get to each of these and they coincide with the first four emperors. And with the opening of the the fourth seal, the rider of the pale ashen horse, it says, and famine comes along. And we know that the fourth emperor of Rome was Claudius. And it says in Acts 11.28, as it says when that fourth seal is opened, famine comes on the earth. We read in Acts 11.28 that, that Agabus the prophet stood and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, a famine is coming on the earth. 
That's half the verse. The last half of the verse says this. This was fulfilled during the reign of Caesar Claudius. So we're given clues, historical clues in the Bible itself as to what the book of Revelation means. It then says, with the opening of the fifth seal, there's no horse because the, the, the next emperor was Nero. He was not a military emperor. He didn't have the trappings of a military background, so he was not riding a horse. But he was the one that waged a massive wave of persecution against the church, killing millions of people, millions of Christians. And so with Nero, we read with that fifth seal opening, it says, and the martyrs cried out. And it corresponds exactly with what we know in history. With the opening of the sixth seal, it talks about the sun being darkened and the moon being turned to black and the stars falling from the sky. And I know that there are people that think, well, this is talking about something that's going to happen in the last days. And, and, and I suggested to you, no, if you let the Bible interpret the Bible, sun, moon and stars means something in the Bible. In Genesis 37, Joseph dreamed a dream and he saw the sun, moon and stars bow down to him. And who did he see bowing down to him? His brothers, his mother, his father, the foundation of the nation of Israel. When the prophets describing Israel as being like the sun, being like the moon, being like the stars, and they all shine light. And that was the picture that God had for Israel, to shine his light to the world. And yet the prophets declared, and we read this in Isaiah 13, and we read this in Joel chapter 2, and we read this through Ezekiel, and we even read Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, saying the same thing, that when Israel turns its back, if, if that's the light of God and Israel is meant to bask in his light, to reflect that light to the world, when Israel turned its back on God and went after idols and immorality and Ignoring his word, it, the prophets all said this, The sun has been darkened. The moon no longer gives forth its light, or it's been turned to black. Or as the prophet Joel said in chapter 2, The moon has been turned to blood, and the stars have fallen from the sky. It's, you hear how it's poetic language describing how Israel had turned its back on God. And with the opening of the sixth seal, it says that, that the destruction will come upon the city of Jerusalem. And indeed, it began during the reign of Caesar Nero, who declared war on Jerusalem in 66 AD. So we need to understand when we look at some of these prophecies, because this is what I have encountered with people. People said, well, Andrew, that, that may be so. That may be so, that what they read applied to them. But I think it will all be repeated and it will reapply to us. And here's my question. Why? Why would you think that? Because there is no reason in Scripture to think that. And I've had people say, oh no, God often had double meanings for his prophecies. And I go, give me one example. And the only example I've ever had anyone give me is when Isaiah the prophet said in uh, chapter 7, verse uh, 13, 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear forth a son. Then in the next chapter, and it says, And my wife gave birth to a child. And then Matthew says in chapter 1 that when Mary uh, gave birth to Christ, this fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. And they say, see? There's two fulfillments. And I find that to be absurd. I'll tell you why I find it to be absurd. Because only one of those passages after the prophecy said it actually fulfilled the prophecy. And only one did. I'm pretty sure Isaiah's wife was not a virgin when she gave birth to her child. Therefore, it did not fulfill that prophecy. Now, without that one, what else have you got as far as a double fulfillment of prophecy? 
And the answer is just to save you a bit of time and to stop you searching in your Google. You can search if you want, but I can just save you the effort. There isn't any. Therefore, when God declares in his word, this will happen, I'm going to tell you he had something in mind. He intended it to mean something. So the nature of Bible prophecy is this. It has an intended fulfillment, not multiple ongoing potential fulfillments. I'm sure that there are some people who go, well, when the Twin Towers in New York fell, that really did sound like uh, Revelation chapter 18, which coincidentally talks about towers falling. And I'm sure maybe God was up there going, give me a look at that again. Yeah, that could work. I didn't see it at the time, but maybe I don't think so. I don't think so. So I'm not trying to be overly dramatic and silly about this. I just want us to understand that when God says something in prophecy, he means something in particular. And this is why, as we look back in history, and we can see what the original readers saw in the first century, I think we can actually have great confidence that what God said would happen in his word, and this was written in 65 AD, and I already told you that war was declared on Jerusalem in 66 AD. So when we read in the book of Revelation, these things are soon. These things are now. These things are at hand. We are in the hour when this is about to be fulfilled. Can you see now that when I, mean, I remember growing up in a church where I was told as a teen, uh, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. And when Jesus said soon in the book of Revelation, and it's been 2,000 years, soon is obviously not a, 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 the same as it means to us. And I just find that madness, as if God would use deceptive language to communicate truth. When Daniel was told in the closing chapter of his book, chapter 12, seal up the words of this prophecy, for they are a long time into the future. And they spoke about the coming of Christ. And Christ came 300 years later. In Bible language, Bible time frame, that was a long time. So please tell me what soon means. This hour, now, at hand. I'm going to suggest to you it means, get ready for it, you might want to write this down. Soon, now, at hand, this hour. It's going to happen really, really soon. And it did. It did. We can see it from history. So we can have great confidence that God's word is is true so we need to understand the the language of the book revelation i'll just tell you now if you're a brand new christian and you've not read anything from the bible please don't start in revelation if you are not given to sleeping well and are slightly prone to having nightmares please don't read about flying scorpions with horses heads who breathe out blood and fire and some guy who's riding barebacked with a tattoo up his thigh long flowing hair like fabio or whatever his name is he's got a sword and out and look it's just going to it's just not going to do well for your, your your insomnia so start somewhere nice and lovely somewhere anywhere just i had someone said to me every new believer should read psalm 119 over and over and over and over. And, and that's, a, that's a lovely, nice, gentle psalm just to get you going. But not Revelation. Revelation is the last book of the Bible for good reason. And if you are not versed in Scripture, you are going to read about things in here and you're going to go, oh, because I remember as a, I, I'm telling you to do what I didn't do. Because after I became a Christian around at the age of 15, I jumped into Revelation and I read it from the Living Bible, which, by the way, is not the best translation to read the book Revelation, because there's little footnotes by Kenneth Taylor who translated it. And I remember reading things like this. Um, this great horde, this army, they're, they're the Chinese, he says in the footnote. 
if you're at all from Chinese descent, I apologise on behalf of Kenneth Taylor, who I think um, it was completely wrong, especially when the book of Revelation does one of the principles of Bible interpretation. It does this. Before you go and jump in and assume you know this special tricky meaning of anything in the book of Revelation, let it tell you what it means first. Just let it tell you. For example, see, one of the reasons Kenneth Taylor thought it was the, the dragon, uh, sorry, is China, is because it talks about being the army of the dragon in Revelation chapter 12. The army of the dragon. Ah, oh, that's China. And that's, that's what we call in theological circles stupid because it actually goes on and tells you this dragon who is also called Satan, the devil. It's not China, it's Satan, the devil. So what I'm going to suggest to you is that we get familiar with the language. And one of the, the, the interesting things about how Revelation uses language is how it uses numbers. I've introduced this to you and I want to remind you of some of these numbers. The number four, whenever uh, apocalyptic, that is language which is symbolic of, of end and calamity. And when I say end, I want to be very, very careful here. And this is going to shock and upset a lot of people. Just take a number and get in line. Is that when the Bible talks about the end and the last days, I'm going to suggest to you it's not talking about the end of the world and the last days of humanity. It's talking about the end of something and the last days of something. And so when we read here about the number four in, apocaly in apocalyptic language, it often means something that has human interaction. And so you're going to read, and uh, if we had the time, we would stroll through Revelation chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, and maybe 11, but we won't. We'll see if we can make our way through just one chapter. But you will read in that, in that section, which I think is a section because it's where the trumpets start. We, we read this, that there were... Four spirits who were sent out to the four corners of the earth, who summoned the four winds of the earth. And when you read this four, you think, boy, it's like coincidence. It's actually making a point that this has something to do with humanity. Something is about to happen involving humanity. When Christ became incarnate, that is, he left his throne in heaven and came to earth as a zygote, the, the very first beginning of human life. And he became a human. The record of, of his life is told in four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And we've seen that when the, the four cherubim that surround the presence of God, again, it speaks that God in his, in his vast power chose to create human beings and these four creatures these cherubim all have four faces which again is speaking of God's interaction with humanity the face Matthew the, the the line of the tribe of Judah the first face is the face of a lion Matthew Mark Mark is written to the Romans the Romans were interested in works and glory and power and get the job done that's what they use bullocks for a bull so you have the face of a, of a lion, the face of an ox. And then Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke is the, the man, shows Christ. It says numerous times through Luke, more than any other gospel, and he had compassion on them. It talks about Christ thirsting, hungering, feeling alone. 
That's hum humanity stuff. And so we have the, the face of these creatures, the, the lion, the ox, and the face of a man. And then the Gospel of John speaks about Christ not, as a, not just as a man, but as God in the flesh. And the eagle, the majestic eagle, speaks of the deity of Christ. And so these cherubim creatures all have the faces of, of a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle in that order. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Four speaks of interacting with humanity. Then we have the use of the number seven. And this is, I think, incredible in John's gospel. He lists seven miracles, seven signs that Christ did. He gives us seven sermons that Christ preached. He gives us seven statements from Christ, all beginning with, I am. Seven speaks of complete and perfect. It speaks of end. It's, it's all there. Nothing's missing. It's all there. Complete. All there. So when it describes the Holy Spirit, it describes the Father seated on the throne. It describes the Lamb with seven horns. And horn in Scripture speaks of power and strength. When kings were anointed under the Old Testament, they would take the, the, the horn of an ox, a horn of a, of, a, of a bullock, and fill it with oil, picture of the Holy Spirit. And they would pour out of that picture of strength onto the king. A picture of being anointed in strength. And today we use that expression, you were anointed. In other words, you got strength from God to do what you just did. Who could do with a bit more of that? I'm the only one, me and David, two, three, four. We could all do with that, right? And so seven in Scripture is all. And so when the Holy Spirit is described in that picture of the Father on the throne, the Lamb with seven horns, and then it says, and there are seven flames which are the seven spirits of God. Does it mean there's seven Holy Spirits? No. Can you see it's a word picture? In fact, this, in this instance, it's a number picture. This is the all-powerful, the all-encompassing. And it says that the lamb has seven eyes. That's a see, see what I said about nightmares? You imagine having a dream about a little lamb. Seven horns coming out of its head with seven eyes. That's too much pizza. That's what that is if you're dreaming that. So it's giving us... A word and number picture of Christ. What is seven eyes? It means he sees all. That, that song that I think Cliff Richard did, then Bette Midler redid, God is watching. He is. For the believer, it's a tremendous comfort. For the unbeliever, it's terribly uncomfortable because God is watching. Seven eyes. Then there's the number 12 that we're going to see in this passage as well. And 12, I'll remind you, speaks of... Rescue, redeemed, those that God redeems. And it also speaks not just redeemed, but redeemed to lead. Redeemed to lead. So when God chose a people, he organized them into 12 tribes. He redeemed them out of Egypt and he called them to lead. When God chose disciples, when Christ, God in the flesh chose disciples, he chose 12 disciples. He redeemed 12 people and he charged them to lead. So when we read in Revelation chapter 4 of 24 elders, that's 12 from the old, 12 from the new. And in this section, we're going to see that God takes 12 and 12. And the, 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 see, the number of the redeemed is not just added. It's not like there's 12, 24 redeemed people. What we're going to see in Scripture is the use, and I haven't got it on the screen, but the use of another number. And, and, and the use of the, the other number is this number, 1,000, or a thousand to be more precise, a thousand. 
And I know that in Revelation chapter 20, from verses 4 and 5, it talks about, and, and he shall rule and reign a thousand years. And I know that there is, some, and that's generally called the millennium. Millennium means a thousand years. And there are some people that are, that are taking that very wooden literally, that Christ will come, return to earth, set up his headquarters in Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, and from there he will rule the earth for a thousand years. Again, I'm going to suggest to you that even that number is a word picture. It's a number picture. The picture of a thousand in the Old Testament. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Oh, cool. Got mine on the thousand and first hill. I don't pay rent. See how silly that is? God owns all cattle is what it's telling you. In other words, that, that number thousand in the Old Testament is a number so big, it's not meant to be counted. But it's a thousand. No, it's a symbol of so vast, it's not meant to be counted. So Job says, I could ask him a thousand questions and each time he could answer. Ask him a thousand and one questions and he might be stumped. Not likely. One day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. But a thousand and one days, you don't quite match. See, it doesn't make sense. But when you look at what Scripture is saying, that use of a thousand, so vast, not meant to be counted. So when we, speak, when, we, when we see Scripture speaking of Christ shall rule and reign for a thousand years, here's my question. Will there ever be a time when Christ does not rule and does not reign? See, I get really annoyed when people, well-meaning, well-intentioned people say this. Will you come up the front and make Christ Lord? Can I just say, and it might sound arrogant, I'd please, I don't mean to be arrogant, I just mean to be truthful. Whether you make him Lord or not, he's still Lord. The Bible says you will bow your knee to him because he is Lord. You will do it gladly, dropping to your knee, as we sang this morning, taking the crown and casting it before him and saying, we are not worthy of the reward you've given us and we ascribe it back to you gladly and willingly, and I want to be numbered among those, or you will do it out of great rebellion, but you will be overcome with the truth that he is Lord. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He shall rule and reign for a thousand years. I'm going to suggest to you that means he's going to rule and reign forever. And I know that upsets people who go, but I went on the I went to Jerusalem and they said that 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 we're the timepiece for Christ coming back. Because he's going to rule from here for one thousand years and we've got the special calendars printed and everything. And I heard someone ring up a talk back program where the teacher on that program had, had been teaching this and they said, but what about those people who died during that one thousand years? And we've already had the, the the last resurrection. What happens to them? And I thought, bingo, great question, because that, that causes your, your whole idea of this being a literal thousand-year period to fall apart right there. So, there's, so having told you that, here's another number that we need to see right now. It's the number 144,000. And I want to show you in Revelation chapter 7 that that number is not a wooden literal number and that the next time the Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking at your door telling you that there's only 144,000 in heaven. You can look at them, and like my American friends, when they say, well, bless your heart, which I discovered, I've been to America a few times, and I've discovered they'll look at you sweetly, put their hand on your shoulder, and go, well, bless your heart. And what they're really saying is, you really are an idiot, aren't you? <laughs> well, bless your heart. I thought, whoa, whoa, thank you. Then I realised... <laughs> so... 
knowing that little code, it will bless your heart. If anyone comes up to me after this service, I'm on to you. So let's have a look. Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. And after this, I saw four angels, right? So immediately you should go, aha, something's about to happen, interacting with us, standing as in human beings, standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so no wind could blow on the earth, on the sea, or any trip. Now, I just want to point out two other words that I haven't pointed out to you yet. One is the word earth. It, it, it's the, the Greek word uh, gi, uh, G-E in English, where we, get, uh, we say G, and we would say geography, geology, and we're speaking of study of soil, earth. And it means also the land. And I'm going to suggest to you that this, the expression earth, almost invariably throughout scripture, unless the context demands otherwise, speaks of the land of Israel. The land of Israel. So when it says that they brought the Ark of the Covenant into the camp of Israel and the whole earth shook. I'm pretty sure you could search the annals of Aboriginal history here in Tasmania about that time. And you won't, you won't go, funny thing happened today. We were just minding our business and the whole earth shook with the chorus, hallelujah. I don't think you're going to find that. In other words, please understand this language. It said that where we were, the land where we were, all of Israel had gathered and the Ark of the Covenant was brought in and it was like rapturous praise and worship and it felt like the whole ground shook. And they, the writer records it like this, the whole earth shook. I'm pretty sure if you're out in space watching and you, you go, oh, look at that, look what the earth's doing. It's not doing that. So get this. So when scripture uses, in Revelation, uses the word sea, S-E-A, it means not from Israel. So when you have a beast from the earth, in Revelation 13, and a beast from across the sea, beast mean, meaning ruler, and beast is not a pretty picture, by the way, we're looking for someone who is ruling in Israel and someone who is not from Israel, not a Jew, not a Hebrew, because they're from across the sea. Verse 2, Then I saw another angel descending from the east who had the seal of the living God. And here's, I, I know I'm... I'm Pausing, but I need you to understand this. Because there are words that paint pictures and there are numbers that paint pictures and there are directions that paint pictures. And Revelation is using them all. And if you don't understand this from the Old Testament, you are going to read this and go, that is one crazy Steven Spielberg script right there. If he ever gets a hold of this, man, oh man, the sci-fi phenomenon is going to be unreal. Or if you are familiar with the Old Testament, you'll go, East, hmm. Isn't there something about coming from the... Now, if you're coming from the east, which direction are you heading, by the way? West. When Adam and Eve sinned, God immediately sent uh, cherubs to get rid of... Sorry, uh, cherubs to get rid of uh, Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. And he sent them out of the east gate. That means they were heading east. And here's the interesting picture in Scripture... When mankind rebelled against God, they always headed, if we're north, south, east, they always headed east. Always. Adam sinned, taken at the east gate. The whole migration of the earth over to where Noah was, was over to the east. When God called Abram, he called him from a land over here and said, head west. West always speaks in scripture of coming to God. When the tabernacle was set up, it was set up 
so that it was the, the, the gate was on the east side and you would come through that gate, brazen altar, wash basin, tent of meeting, holy place, inside here, bread, altar of incense, candle, seven-armed candle, curtain, and in here was the holy of holies. Can you see which direction I'm heading? So when Jesus was born, wise men came from the east, heading west, which means mankind is coming to God. Who had the seal of the living God, he shouted out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given permission to damage the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I know that there are some silly bods who claim that the seals that we're going to read about, the sealing on the foreheads, which happens here for the redeemed in chapter 7, and the seal of those who are aligning themselves with the beast from across the sea, are microchips implanted in the skin. I'll just tell you right now, no silicon chip is going to send you to hell, but your rebellion to Christ will. As we've heard tonight, the book of Revelation is better understood when we understand some of the historical context of the time it was written. Although written to a particular group of Christians in the first century, its message is just as relevant for us today. That's all we have time for tonight, but you can order the full-length version of this presentation on CD audio or premium download by going to findingtruthmatters.org and selecting Understanding Revelation from our online store. More Finding Truth Matters next week. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to having you tune in again next week for another Finding Truth Matters.